Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. You know, prosperity is always the thing that we want. We want to be prosperous. But remember that little prayer, Lord, give me neither riches nor poverty. I don't want to be poor because then I would steal. And I know you don't want me to steal. I'm paraphrasing here. But riches, the acknowledgement is then, but Lord, don't give me riches either because then I might become proud and forget you. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study through the books of the Old Testament prophets. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Isaiah chapters 3 through 6. Now, here's Pastor Brian. All right, so the prophets, pretty much all of them, their ministry was in difficult times, always. As I mentioned in our introduction, the prophets were not the natural teachers of the people. The priests were. But what happened much of the time in the history of the nation of Israel is the priests did not fulfill their duty. The priests oftentimes themselves went off into various forms of sin and idolatry. And so the prophet would be the person that God would raise up to come in and to speak to the issues of the day. And so when you read the prophets, this is where a lot of people think that, oh, you know, the God of the Old Testament is so angry and everything's about judgment and wrath and fire and brimstone. And the reason that you sometimes get that impression is because when you're reading the prophets, you're failing to realize that the context is all-out revolt against God. So the people are rebelling against him, and they continue to rebel against him. And so the prophets are sent in to warn them, to hopefully turn them back to the Lord, but then to also let them know that if they refuse to turn back to the Lord, there is a judgment that will come. And that is what we see with Isaiah as well. Now, Isaiah is mainly going to be prophesying about the Babylonian invasion that will come and the destruction that will come as a result of that and the captivity that will come. But remember that that is about 100 years out from the time Isaiah is prophesying. So he's prophesying of stuff that's going to come, but it's not there in his day. But you know, in Isaiah's day, as we're going to see in a moment, they had been living in a long season of peace and prosperity. And unfortunately, as is sometimes the case, many times the case, when people live in peace and prosperity, they have a tendency to lose their priorities and they have a tendency to neglect the things of the spirit and and quite often to turn their backs on God. Israel did that over and over again. So that's, that's the background for Isaiah and where we pick up. So as we go through you know, some of the chapters, we're going to look really closely at everything in the chapter. Some of them, we're going to look at parts of it and then you know, skim over other parts. And so starting with the third chapter, note this, the Lord God of armies is about to remove Jerusalem and from Judah every kind of security. 
the entire supply of bread and water. Heroes and warriors, judges and prophets, fortune tellers and elders, commanders of 50 and dignitaries, counselors, cunning magicians, and necromancers. Now, these are the people, this is basically a description of the people who were in charge of the nation. And so the warning here is that God's going to remove everybody who's running the nation, the people who are in political power, the people who are in civil service, you know, the people that are, are basically just responsible for keeping the society going. The Lord says he's going to remove them. And then verse four, I will make youths their leaders and unstable rulers will govern them. The people will oppress one another, man against man, neighbor against neighbor. The young will act arrogantly toward the old and the worthless toward the honorable. So what God is saying is he's going to take away the stability, the governmental stability, and he's going to turn them over to people who don't know what they're doing. He's going to turn them over to children. He's going to turn them over to people who are going to end up oppressing them. And this is something that we see over and over again in the Bible and in the stories of the kings and then the prophets who, again, were the ones that were interjected into the lives of those kings. We see this pattern that one of the ways that God judges a people is by giving them terrible rulers by allowing leaders to come into power that don't lead well and, and actually end up oppressing the people. And that is the case all the way through. And so that's what he's referring to here. In Romans chapter one, there's a, a similar idea that Paul communicates where he talks about God giving people up this is the beginning of a judgment. A judgment starts not with all of the catastrophic kinds of things that it might end with. It starts with God turning people over to their own lust and desire and then allowing them to reap the consequences of their choices. And so that's what's happening here. So they're rejecting the Lord. They don't want the Lord to rule over them. And so God's like, okay, well, if you don't want me to rule over you, then I'll, I'll, I'll let people rule over you who will oppress you. And this is a pattern that is not restricted to the scriptures. This is a pattern that you see all throughout history. And I think uh, we're seeing that even roll out in our time, sadly. And so... He goes on and he speaks of a man will even seize his brother in his father's house saying, you have a cloak, you be our leader. This heap of rubble will be under your control. On that day, he will cry out saying, I am not a healer. I don't even have food or clothing in my house. Don't make me the leader of the people. For Jerusalem has stumbled, Judah has fallen because they have spoken and acted against the Lord Define his glorious presence. The look on their faces testifies against them. And like Sodom, they flaunt their sin. They do not conceal it 
woe to them. Wow. So in that day, they were flaunting their sin. They were no longer hiding it. They were no longer blushing about it. There was no shame. They were just marching through the streets and very proud of their sin. And so they have brought disaster upon themselves. Verse 10, though, says, tell the righteous that it will go well for them, for they will eat the fruit of their labor. Woe to the wicked, it will go badly for them, for what they have done will be done to them. Then again, youths oppress my people and women rule over them. My people, your leaders mislead you. They confuse the direction of your paths. So tell the righteous that it will be well with them. So that, that was the promise, that God was going to continue to bless the righteous. But the righteous, of course, would have been the, a minority, would have been a very small group of people. Uh, the majority of people were in this revolt against the Lord. So the majority is going to be judged. And now, of course, having just come through the Kings and the Chronicles, we saw how that judgment came, that thorough judgment finally came through the Babylonians. But we saw how Jeremiah and others, the righteous, they were spared the judgment. But the vast majority of the nation was not. Now, as you go down to verse 16, I want you to notice this. It says, the Lord also says, because the daughters of Zion are haughty, walking with heads held high and seductive eyes, prancing along, jingling their ankle bracelets, the Lord will put scabs on the head of the daughters of Zion and the Lord will shave their foreheads bare. On that day, the Lord will strip, this is what I want you to notice, the Lord will strip their finery, ankle bracelets, headbands, crescents, pendants, bracelets, veils, headdresses, ankle jewelry, sashes, perfume, bottles, amulets, signet rings, nose rings, festive robes, capes, cloaks, purses, garments, linen cloths, turbans, and shawls. The Lord's going to strip them of everything. But what does this tell us about them? It tells us that they were an extremely affluent society. You know, it just like, I read that description there and you just think of, well, you, you kind of think about America today and you think about the affluence and you think about all of the luxury that so many live in. And that's what was happening in Jerusalem at the time. We're going to see in a, in a few minutes that, as I already mentioned, they were living in, in a long season of prosperity. And this is the kind of lifestyle that was the result of that long season of prosperity. It's almost like human beings as sinners are not able to handle prosperity. Success, fame, I mean, think about it. Think about the people that have become famous. And, you know, I mean, if you think of the entertainment industry or, you, you know, you could think even of maybe some sports figures, but more so in the entertainment industry, I think. You think of the people that have become famous. Think of how many people have been able 
to really handle that lifestyle well. And you realize there haven't really been all that many. You know, most of them, when you look at their lives, they're, they're just a wreck. They're a disaster. And it just seems like when you get this kind of power, when you get this kind of wealth, when you get this lack of accountability, when you get this like, you know, I can just do what I want and there's no restraints, no restrictions, you self-destruct. And that happens personally and it happens to societies. And so prosperity, you know, prosperity is always the thing that we want. We want to be prosperous. But remember that, that little prayer that it appears in the Psalms where the psalmist says, I think it's the Psalms, it's either Psalms or Proverbs, but the, the prayer is, Lord, give me neither riches nor poverty. I, I don't want to be poor because then I would steal, and I know you don't want me to steal, I'm paraphrasing here, but riches, the acknowledgement is then, but Lord, don't give me riches either because then I might become proud and forget you. And that's the tendency with riches. And, you know, we, even ourselves, you know, we always want prosperity. But the Lord's wise to say, well, let's, let's hold off on that. Let's mingle that with a little adversity to keep your feet on the ground and your head out of the clouds and you out of trouble. Because this is the pattern and this is why Judah is in the situation that it's in right now, because in their prosperity, they forgot the Lord. And so it goes on from verse 24 to the end of the chapter, just describing the judgment. It's very unpleasant uh, description, so you can read over that on your own. Chapter 4, on, the, on that day, seven women will seize one man, saying, we will eat our own bread and provide our own clothing. Just let us bear your name. Take away our disgrace. So it's just this deplorable thing that's going to develop. But on that day, the branch. So this Isaiah does this. He will give a prophetic word about the judgment that's to come. And then literally, like in the next breath, he will project out beyond the time of judgment to the time of mercy and restoration. And that's exactly what he does here. So on that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of Israel's survivors. Whoever remains in Zion and whoever is left in Jerusalem will be called holy, all in Jerusalem written in the book of life. So there's a judgment that's coming, but then there's a blessing that's coming. Now, just take note in this verse here, verse two, note, on that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful. The branch is a reference to the Messiah. You can find this in Jeremiah chapter 23, the prophecy there in chapter 23 and the prophecy in chapter 33, both speak about the branch. And Zacharias speaks about the branch as well. So this was one of the titles that was given to the Messiah. And actually at the end of chapter six, we're gonna see why he was called the branch. Because 
I'll give it away because all that's going to be left at the end of the judgment is going to be a stump, but there's going to be a shoot that rises up out of the stump and the shoot will become the branch. And that, of course, is a reference to the Lord. So the promise of blessing on the other side of the judgment that's going to come. And so, again, the remainder of the chapter is talking about how God is going to deal with them. So chapter 5 reads, I will sing about the one I love, a song about my loved one's vineyard. The one I love had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He broke up the soil, cleared it of stones, and planted it with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it and even dug out a wine press there. He expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. So now residents of Jerusalem and men of Judah, please judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I did? Why when I expected a yield of good grapes, did it yield worthless grapes. Now I will tell you what I'm about to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. It will be consumed. I will tear down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland. It will not be pruned or weeded. Thorns and briars will grow up. I will also give orders to the clouds that rain should not fall on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, the plant he delighted in. He expected justice, but saw injustice. He expected righteousness, but heard cries of despair. So this description is, this description of a vineyard, the Lord says, this is the house of Israel and Judah. If you turn to Matthew, don't have to turn there, but if you want to look later, if you turn to Matthew 21, Jesus quotes this very portion of scripture to the people of his day. And the context of the quote is their rejection of him as the Messiah. And he just pretty much word for word goes through this passage. Now, something to realize when we go through these prophets, they're going to their prophecy is going to have an immediate fulfillment or a near fulfillment. And then it's going to have a distant fulfillment and maybe even a more distant fulfillment. And that's especially true with Isaiah and the destruction of Jerusalem because Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem, but then Titus destroyed Jerusalem as well. And then part of the prophecy is about the destruction of Jerusalem yet future. So you have to sort of look at each one of the prophecies and see how they fit. Now, um, it certainly had a fulfillment, this destruction of the vineyard, it certainly had a fulfillment when Nebuchadnezzar came. But then it obviously had a fulfillment in Titus because Jesus applied the verse to Jerusalem at the time. But then you, we find that it will also have a future fulfillment because, and this is how we know, because when the, when the judgments are described 
And then the future restoration is described. The future restoration is a restoration that has not ever happened yet. And really, the context of it, it can't happen until the Lord comes back. Because it's things like this, you know, I'm just paraphrase it, but you know, something like, you know, the Lord's going to restore Israel. He's going to knit their hearts to his heart. They will never depart from him again. He's going to put their law in their minds, in their hearts. He's going to make a covenant with them. And, and you see, none of that has happened in history. That's all still yet to come. They went into captivity. Um, when the Babylonians came, they were in captivity for 70 years. They came back to the land. They came back to the land in somewhat of a repentant and, and righteous condition, but then it wasn't very long before they were back in sin again. And so you have the, the prophets like Zechariah and Haggai and Malachi who were writing after the captivity, and it, it's kind of like the same old problems resurfaced. So you know that the, the return from Babylon was not, the, was not the fulfillment of those promises, nor was it the return from the exile after the destruction by Titus? And that's exactly where we are today. So when Titus destroyed the city in 70 AD, the Jews were dispersed throughout the world for 2,000 years and only came back into the land in 1948. But today, they're still not in the land in a covenant relationship with God. They're in the land in rebellion against the Messiah still to this day. And they're in the land living in sin and idolatry and, and all of those things. And, you know, in Israel today, you can, if you're Jewish, you can be, you can be a Buddhist, you can be a Hindu, you could be New Age, you can even be an atheist. And it's okay. You fit right into Jewish society along with the, you know, the Reformed or the conservative or the Orthodox Jewish people. But the one thing you cannot be is a follower of Jesus. See, under all of those other things, you're still identified as a Jew. You're a Jewish atheist, but that's okay. There's a lot of Jewish atheists. You're a Jewish New Age person, that's, that's cool. There's a lot of those too. But don't talk about being a Jewish follower of Jesus because that's the cardinal sin in Israel to this very day. So the Israeli government, they love evangelicals. They love us to come and spend tour money and they, they love us to support the nation, but don't you dare try to tell a Jewish person that Jesus is the Messiah. That's when they don't like you, and that's when they will tell you, you know, hey, we don't, we don't want to hear any of that stuff. So they're, they're still in that place now. So there's a future restoration that will come where they will come back into the covenant, and that covenant will be with the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. But there's a judgment that will precede it as well. So that's what you see when you go through Isaiah. Sometimes a near fulfillment, sometimes the Babylonian captivity, sometimes even the Roman one probably foreshadowed but not detailed, but then ultimately the final um, judgment that will come. So in verse 8, Isaiah begins a series of woes.
July, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled, Is Jesus History? by Dr. John Dixon. Living in an age of science and empirical evidence, how can people still believe in miracles? How can someone believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead? The resurrection of Jesus is essential for the Christian faith. If Jesus never rose from the dead, then an offer for eternal life does not carry any authority. So, is there any historical evidence that can be examined to test the authenticity of such a claim? Dr. John Dixon addresses this very question and examines the ancient evidence as a trained historian. He explains the evidence simply and clearly, so you'll be able to consider the evidence for yourself. If you've ever wondered if there's any historical evidence for the existence of Jesus and His resurrection, then you need to get this month's resource from Back to Basics. The book is Jesus History by Dr. John Dixon. It's our gift to say thank you for your donation to Back to Basics. So we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Isaiah. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.